I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of John, John chapter 6. This very long chapter that we've already been um, just a couple sections into it has already proven to be outstanding. Um, There have been many times as I've been studying this that I've just had to stop and pray, ask God's forgiveness for my own lack of faith, for my own lack of trusting in Him, for my own lack of finding Him all-satisfying. And several of you have been very encouraging through emails or phone calls or texts to say that God's working on your hearts through these verses. And it's my prayer that God would continue to do that this morning. John chapter 6, very long chapter, very pivotal chapter. Let's just remember where we've been thus far. Two sections, feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water. We've seen Jesus clearly demonstrate his deity by feeding 5,000 men. It was probably over 20,000 people, an enormous crowd. We see that Jesus is clearly in control of all things, that he cares for those who are around him. And then specifically, we saw Jesus' care for his own disciples, 12 baskets left over. If you minister in Jesus' name for the glory of God, you will not be uh, unfulfilled. You will not be left hungry, but God will satisfy you through Jesus Christ, his son, We saw clearly that the crowds were excited. They wanted to make Jesus king. They saw the sign they loved Jesus for it. But we saw that their hearts were not truly wanting Jesus for who he claimed to be, but for who they wanted him to be. They wanted him to be useful for them. We saw Jesus walking on the water, and John's clear omission in that section was that the storm ceased. Jesus got into the boat, and John says, who really cares about the storm? If you have Jesus with you, it doesn't matter If there's a storm outside of you, as long as Jesus is in your boat, then you will be fine. Jesus becomes your bread of life. You can be satisfied by him. He becomes your safety. You can be secure in him. And what we're going to look at this morning happens the day after the feeding the 5,000 and the walking on water. This whole section is just one very long pregnant section. What Jesus does in this section this morning, in these verses... What he says in response to the crowds, what they do, what they say, and how Jesus responds is exactly what we need to hear this morning. Uh, I've prayed more this week probably than I've ever prayed for a sermon. um, Because I believe, honestly, with, with all of my being, that if we understand the meaning of this text and the application of this text for our lives... Our marriages will be better, our families will be better, our relationships at work will be better, everything will be better. Everything will change from a right understanding of this passage and a right application of it. So with that said, let's ask God to give us ears to hear, eyes to see, even now, as we read this section. John chapter 6, verses 22 through 29. The next day... The crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except for one. And that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that the disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, 
You seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but work for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Therefore, they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Father, I pray as I've been praying all week long for our church individually and corporately. God, make us a peculiar people to this world. Make us peculiar even to ourselves that we would look and see our affections have changed. Our desires have changed. What we live for is different because we follow Jesus. God, may we not think that there's multiple categories of believers. That there's somehow truly radical Christians and then Christians that are just struggling, but they don't really live for Jesus. God, make this passage ring so clearly and loudly in our souls that we would see it is either follow Jesus as treasure or do not follow him at all. God, I pray that even as your word is proclaimed this morning, that your spirit would identify for us as the word does its job to divide between joint and marrow, that it would bring about the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. It would bring them to light. It would bring them to the surface in such a way that we could see the things in our lives that stand in the way of us pursuing you and you alone. Make us a radical people that would be devoted to you so that the entire world would see that's what it means to be a believer. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it means to see him as all-satisfying. And so, God, I pray, as I pray every Sunday morning, may those who would hear this message hear a better message than I preach because they hear you speak and not me. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 6, verses 22 through 29. We can just divide this section into two main points. Two main points for our outline, and you have them on in your bulletin. Number one, the seeking crowds, and number two, the satisfying Christ. The seeking crowds and the satisfying Christ. Seeking crowds, uh, verses 22 through 26. Let's look at that first. Verses 22 through 26 uh, are very, very, 22 through 25 are very, very clunky verses. In my Bible, they're very clunky. ESV is decently clunky. King James struggles a little bit here. NIV is probably the best translation for this section. It's very, very clunky because the original language is very clunky. Um, Even as you read through it, there's many ways to splice it up and to dice it together. What is happening here? If I can just explain it and then we'll go and we'll see it. The crowds on the shore were fed by Jesus and they saw Jesus command his disciples to get into a boat. They saw that boat. They saw that there were no other boats. And then they saw Jesus walk away. They stayed there. Sun goes down. Big, huge storm. And they're expecting that wherever the boat goes, um, that's only holding the disciples. And Jesus is probably going to walk back to where uh, the miracle had taken place. The boat might come back to. They don't really know what's happening, but they're seeking Jesus. They constantly are seeking Jesus. 
even boats from across the sea, the Sea of Galilee, in Tiberias, have heard of this miracle, have heard what's happening. They're coming over to see Jesus, but nobody can find him. They're wondering where he is. And then when they show up in Capernaum, so if you have the Sea of Galilee, um, from, from your perspective, uh, they're over here. Feeding the 5,000 takes place here. Tiberius is directly across. And up here is Capernaum at the very, very tippy top of the Sea of Galilee. And they know that the disciples' boat has landed in Capernaum. We saw that last week. It's up in Capernaum. So they figure, well, we didn't see Jesus go into the boat with the disciples. We saw him just walk away. So we're thinking he's still going to be near Bethsaida, where the feeding of the 5,000 took place. But then he's not there. So then they wander over to Capernaum, and the boats that go over to Bethsaida from Tiberias go back up to Capernaum. And they find Jesus there, and their question in verse 25 is, when did you get here, Rabbi? And implied in that is, how did you get here? We saw your disciples travel over here through a little boat, but you weren't in the boat. How did you get here? So let's read these verses, and hopefully with that explanation, maybe it'll make a little bit more clear sense. Verse 22, the next day, so this is the day after the feeding of the 5,000 and after the, the storm being calmed, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except for one and that Jesus hadn't entered that one with his disciples into the boat. So they know Jesus could not have gone to Capernaum in this boat because he didn't get in this boat. They had gone away alone. Verse 23, there were other boats that were coming from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So they're going to hear, they'd, they'd heard, they had seen, they had heard other people, so they want to go back. Maybe some had traveled over and, um, by walking and then come over by boat. So the crowd is still forming. Verse 24, when the crowd saw that Jesus wasn't there, nor his disciples, they said, let's follow the boat. Jesus isn't here. His disciples aren't here in Bethsaida, where, near Bethsaida, where the feeding of the 5,000 took place. So let's just follow where the boat went. It went to Capernaum. They go to Capernaum seeking Jesus. They expect to find only the disciples because Jesus didn't get in the boat and they see Jesus there. So they say, wait, when did you get here? And implied as, how did you get here? We, we saw the boat. You weren't in the boat. And I, I love Jesus's response. Jesus easily could have said, well, I got into the boat. I walked across water. I helped Peter up. That whole thing. Calm the storm. Got over here. Jesus says, verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. He doesn't go there. He doesn't go to, here's how I got there. Why? Because he knew they didn't even believe, they didn't even understand, they didn't even receive the sign that I gave them with the miracle of the feeding the 5,000. They didn't get that. So if I give them another miracle, it's just further judgment on them because they're not going to receive it. So instead, he responds with a very difficult statement, a very pregnant statement that we're going to get into. But it's easy for us to look and be very hard on these disciples and say, you know what, they have just not figured it out. These followers, these crowds, they just don't get it. And that's why Jesus isn't even giving them an answer. He just doesn't even go there. How did you get here? He doesn't answer. But let's not be hard on them because, number one, we're sinners just like they are. Number two, Jesus' own 12 disciples, not the crowds that don't believe, the 12 that do believe, Mark 6:52 says that they saw the sign of the feeding of the 5000 and they didn't even understand cuz they had hardened hearts. So the issue here is there is a way to see and not see. There is a way to hear and not hear. We've talked about this before with the signs that Jesus does. 
they're, they're like pointing at something. They're like when I point for uh, my son. My son loves anything that has wheels or an engine. Anything. Um, and so if I point to anything that has a wheel or an engine to say, look, it's a fire truck or look, it's an ambulance or look. He gets very excited and he follows my arm to my finger and just stares at my finger. Look, look, look. And he just stares at my finger like, what's the big deal, Dad? I don't understand. And I have to take his head. No, look where my finger's pointing you. The crowds are just staring at the finger, as it were, of the sign of what Jesus had done. He had performed a miracle, but the miracle is not the end. The miracle is a means to an end to get them to see something amazing, but they're not seeing it. This isn't the first time that that's happened, by the way, in this gospel. This isn't the first time that Jesus says something or does something and people find it hard to understand. Nicodemus, Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And he says, I don't get that. How can I go back in a second time and be birthed again? That doesn't work. Woman at the well. Jesus says, I have water to offer you that springs up to eternal life. One sip of this, you're satisfied forever. And she says, give me that because I don't want to have to travel out with my bucket anymore. This is a really challenging job. I don't want to do that. So too here, the disciples, the crowds all think, wow, look at what Jesus did. He can give us bread forever. Let's make him king. What was the point? What was the point of what Jesus did? Jesus performed the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 as a sign to point to something. And that something is the reality that Jesus is the bread of life, the all-satisfying, all-consuming, all-glorious treasure, our bread of life. Just a couple verses that we're going to get into in a couple weeks. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. You ate of temporal bread and were satisfied for a moment. If you eat of me, you will be satisfied for all of eternity. Verse 41, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So just as bread, physical bread came down from heaven to be offered to you, I am the spiritual living bread. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Verse 51, I am the bread, the living bread that has come down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. You're going to live for a little bit because you ate of the, the loaves that I gave you. But I'm offering myself to you, and if you eat of me, you will never die. You will live forever. Verse 55, my flesh is true food. That was the point of the sign. That's the sign is pointing to that reality. But the crowds believe in Jesus as false believers. They believe, but they don't believe. Remember, we talked about four aspects of false disciples false disciples number one are not are are attracted by crowds they're not attracted by the word of god by the worship of god they just love crowds and these crowds uh, even the the ships that were coming from tiberius false disciples to be involved in the crowd let's enjoy a crowd number two false disciples are fascinated by the supernatural this is great magic you know what an amazing magician we want a magician to be our king he'll always satisfy us this will be fun Number three, false disciples think only of earthly benefits. He can offer us bread. This is the best welfare system in the world. And number four, false disciples have no desire to worship Jesus for who he is alone, by himself. You don't use him to get things. You use things to get to him. Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 6. We've already read Hebrews 3 together. We're going to get into Hebrews 6. But the bottom line lesson from the seeking crowds is we need to be careful, as Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 6 says, to be careful of a heart of unbelief. 
Now, it'd be easy for us as a church to think, well, we don't have a heart of unbelief. That, that's an atheist. They don't believe there is a God, but we believe there is a God and we follow Jesus. And I believe that that's true. But I also believe just like there's a way to hear while not hearing and see while not seeing, there's a way to believe while not believing. There's a way to believe the way the crowds did. Jesus is amazing and he gives me bread. I'm going to follow him. There's a way to believe in Jesus in a way that you want Jesus to be and not believe in him as the way that he has commanded for you to receive him. We'll talk more about the crowds, but Jesus' answer is very clear. You are seeking me because you saw signs. You stared at the finger of the signs. You didn't let it point you to the fact that I am the bread of life. You ate of the loaves. You were filled. That's the sign, but you didn't see the sign for what it pointed to. That's the seeking crowds. The seeking crowds are very fickle. And they want to use Jesus. They love the fact that Jesus is an amazing butler in their mind. Whatever I want, Jesus can get it for me. I don't want to be hungry. He can get me food. I'll follow him. I don't want to die. He can raise Lazarus from the dead. I'll follow him. What an amazing Messiah to follow because we're going to go into war against Rome. And as we fight against Rome and one of us dies, he can come over and bring us back to life and then give us a little snack to get our energy back up. This is great. And Jesus says, you're not getting it. So he moves on to explain how he alone, he points to himself, the signs pointing to him as point number two, the satisfying Christ. We have the seeking crowd and the satisfying Christ. Verse 26 through 29 is point number two, satisfying Christ. Verse 27 is an enormously pregnant verse. This is a huge verse. There is so much, you could preach three sermons just from verse 27. There's so much here. For our time and for our purposes, as we see the flow of John, we're not going to just slow down and take this in three sermons. Though you can see exactly where these three sermons are going to come. What Jesus says in verse 27 is that there is something that we should not do. There's something that we should do. And there's a reason for why we should do it. Those could be three sermons in and of themselves. There's something that we shouldn't do. There's something that we should do. And there's a reason why we should do it. Verse 27, do not work for the food which perishes. So that's what we should not do. But, and the word work there is implied, instead of working for food which perishes, work for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. That's what we should do. Don't do this, do this. And then the word for is our motivation. Why? Because on him, on the Son of Man, on Jesus, the Father, God, has set his seal. So I want to start there with the motivation because I think that that's the simplest and the most helpful to start there as our foundation. On him, on Jesus, the Father, God, has set his seal. What's the seal that Jesus is referring to? It's the fact that Jesus bears all of the qualifying marks of what it means to be God. Hebrews chapter 1, he is the exact representation of his nature. There is no mistaking that Jesus is God. It is obvious. Acts chapter 2, when Peter's preaching and he says, You know Jesus the Nazarene who was attested to you by God through signs and wonders and miracles which he did in your midst. If I simply claim to be God but I have nothing to back it up, don't believe me. Jesus claims to be God and then God validates those claims through the miracles that he does. Believe him. You should believe him. That's the seal. 
God has put his seal on Jesus to authenticate and validate the claims that he is making about himself, that he is the Messiah, God come in the flesh. Jesus had already said this in chapter 5, whatever the Father does, the Son does too. I do exactly what God does. I am God. And I love how he specifically says this. He uses very careful words, obviously. He is God and he's careful with his words. But he says in the middle of verse 7, the Son of Man will give you eternal life. Not the Messiah. He's careful with these crowds. If he says the Messiah is going to give you eternal life, they're going to say, yes, we want to make you king. Messiah is just Hebrew word for king. We want you to be king. That's what we wanted. We wanted to come and take you by force to make you king. Jesus says, no, no, I'm not your king. I am a human, but I am God come in the flesh. I am a human. I am the son of man, which is also a title for God back in the book of Daniel. And then he says this. On him, the Father, and he could have just stopped there. The Father has set his seal, but he says, The Father, God. God gave the seal to authenticate that Jesus is who he claims to be. So he's saying to the crowds, You need to receive what I am saying because God has validated what I am saying. God has authenticated what I am saying. It's not just me speaking this to you, it's God who's speaking. So the crowds and us as well this morning. The motivation for our receiving his words is because he is God, very God. That's the motivation. Jesus is God, very God. That's why he says, for on him, the Father, God has set his seal. So that's our motivation. God is talking. God in human flesh is speaking. So what should we not do? Verse 27. Do not work for the food which perishes. Do not work for the food which perishes. The food here in verse 27 is physical food. Back in verse 26, he says, You uh, seek me not because you saw the signs and let them point you to the meaning. You just saw them and you ate of the loaves and were filled. The loaves. You ate of the bread. So don't work for the bread, the food that perishes. This is physical food. Don't work for physical food. So instantly I have to ask the question, does that mean that we should quit our jobs? Some people would say, yes, and I'm taking that, and I'm out of here. I've got my proof text verse. I'm done. I'm going to quit. Here, boss, this is what it says. I've got to follow Jesus. Obviously, words or verses should be ringing in your ears. First um, uh, Timothy chapter 5, if you don't provide for your household, you're worse than an unbeliever. Ephesians chapter 4, you should work so that you can provide for others, give away, work with your hands so that you can provide for others, give away. Um, first or second Thessalonians where Paul says if you don't even work you shouldn't even eat um, obviously that's second Thessalonians 3 obviously this is not saying quit your jobs there's two things this is not saying okay let's clearly say these two things when Jesus says do not work for the food which perishes he is not saying number one quit your jobs and he's not saying number two work hard at your jobs but don't bring home the bread that they provide. Just work endlessly, tirelessly, but don't gain uh, what you are rightfully deserving and earning. Don't, don't take it. Just work and say, you can have it. That's not what these words are saying. So what does it mean? It means already, just inside these verses, don't work for the food which perishes, 
but work for the food which endures to eternal life. It means at least two things already. Number one, there is something beyond now. There's food that perishes and there's eternal life. There's something beyond now. And there's something, number two, better than now. There's something beyond now and there's something better than now. The bread we should be working for is our supreme treasure. It is what will satisfy us eternally. It is everything to us. So there needs to be a temporal change. I'm not working for the here and now. I'm working for eternity. So a temporal change and a treasure change. No longer am I working for this to be my treasure. I'm working for something else to be my treasure. There's a new treasure. There's a new chapter in your life. You have now added another chapter to your life. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you understand that there is an afterlife and that you should live for that more than you do even for the moment here. A non-believer, even though they know, Ecclesiastes 3.11, even though they know uh, that eternity exists because God has stamped that on their hearts, even though they know it, they reject it. So they live for the here and now. They live for the moment. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. So this is clearly telling us right, right off the bat, there is a, a, a different time, there is a time beyond now, and there is something better than the here and now. Let's put this into the context of conversion. You're not saved. You think that this, is, this life is all there is. And you think that trying to live and, and gain everything that you can in this life is all life is for. Just live it up in the here and now. Then God opens your eyes. You see God for who he is. You see your sin for what it is. You see yourself for hopeless and in need of a savior. Jesus saves you from your sins. You eat of the bread of eternal life. You are satisfied. You receive him. You believe in him. And you go to, the, go to work the next day. What changes? On the one hand, everything has changed. On the other hand, nothing has changed. You're still going to work. You're doing your thing. But here's what happens. Now that you work for something other than the bread that perishes, now you are working with a completely different treasure, a completely different paradigm in mind. So everything changes. You go to work now, and somebody gets angry at you, falsely accuses you for something. You don't get mad anymore. No reason to get mad. No reason to get up in arms. Why? Because Jesus has pled your cause before God. You know that you are okay in Jesus' eyes. He's got you and nothing can separate you from the love of God. You're okay. You go to work the next day and your boss uh, says you're fired or has to cut some people and you're laid off. Pre-conversion, bread was everything you were living for. Bread and the here and now is everything to you. So you're saying, I have just lost what provides for me my satisfaction. My job gets me my bread. I've just lost that. I've lost everything. This is why you see billionaires who lose all of their money in the stock market just kill themselves. They kill themselves because everything that they live for is gone, so they have nothing. But when conversion happens and your boss says, I'm sorry, we have to let you go or uh, we, we can't keep you on here. It's okay. You can't take away my treasure. I don't live for the, the treasure in this world. You can't take away my treasure. Will it sting? Sure. Is it, is it suffering? Absolutely. Will you have to work hard to get another job because you have to provide? Absolutely. But everything changes. I, I would say it this way, and John Piper says it this way, and I think it's an excellent way to say it. When you're saved, something about everything changes. When you're saved, Everything doesn't change instantly. It does, 
But a better, more specific, detailed way to say it is something about everything changes. You still go to work. You still go to school. You still have your family. Everything stays the same, but something about everything inside of everything changes. When Jesus is your treasure and you're no longer dominated by the bread that perishes, living for the bread that perishes, you never again have to fear losing it. You never have to fear losing your life. If you just stop and think about living in Syria, just stop for 10 minutes today. I I beg you, stop for 10 minutes today and think about living in Syria as a believer. And think about everyone around you is fleeing for their lives. And as you are trying to get away to safety, you are overtaken by ISIS and they line you up and they kneel you down on the ground and they put a knife to your throat. Would you be terrified in that moment and sad because you're losing everything you've lived for? Or can you have an honest fear about the unknown of death, but let the known of eternity trump that and say to live is Christ, to die is gain? I'm not living for this world. So if you take away this world from me, you have taken away nothing I'm not living for this world. If you take away my life, that's the worst you can do to me. And that's the best thing you can do for me because my life is in in the next life. That's my treasure. My treasure is not in this life. Again, verses should be ringing in your ears and in your soul. Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy and thieves can break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. They're kept for all of eternity. They're yours. They're waiting and no one can steal them away. So our job as believers is to keep eternal life before our eyes. Don't live for that which perishes. Live for that which is eternal. Always keep eternal life right before your eyes and always snack every second of every day on Jesus Christ as the living bread. Snack on him. Feast on him. That's what we do together on Sunday mornings. Sunday mornings, Lord willing, are a feast satisfying our souls and our appetites spiritually for Jesus Christ, eating of him, drinking deeply of him. We walk away from here, we read our Bibles, we pray, we fellowship. You cannot go, um, well, you can, but I wouldn't recommend it, eat a meal on Sunday morning and then go the rest of the week without eating and then show up again on Sunday and eat another meal and live your life that way. Um. That's what we do as believers so often. If you only come, and I'm going into next week's message, but if you only come to the worship service on Sunday morning, you are, I can promise you, you are an emaciated believer. You cannot be a strong believer. You cannot, because you're not feasting on Jesus throughout the rest of the week. You cannot be a strong believer. You need to feast on him throughout the entirety of the week. And then something about everything changes. You're out of the rat race. You're out of anxiety. You don't live for the weekends anymore because your rest isn't in this life. Your rest is in the next life. You don't live for retirement. You're not living going, oh, I just want to get to retirement and then I can do everything I want to do. No, I just want to get to heaven and then I can do everything I want to do because I want to be satisfied by Jesus for all of eternity without sin. I want to be in fellowship with believers with an undefiled, unadulterated mind. 
The opposite of this, of this is true. How foolish must we look to the world when we say, we're believers. We love Jesus and he is all satisfying. And then we are just as anxious as they are about our jobs. We are just as anxious as they are about our health. We are just as anxious as they are about everything that they're anxious for. And then they look at us and they say, I thought you said something different. Oh yeah, I believe Jesus. My life isn't it. If it is, something about everything will change. It will. It will change. Just think in your own life. What is it that you're living for? Oh, if, all, if only I had that, I'd be content. If only I had that, I would arrive. If I could just have this, Jesus is saying here, if you can just have me, you have everything you need. Rest in that. Receive that. Feast on that. And this changes everything. It changes your leisure. I was studying this on Wednesday. Um, my wife and I were reading together Wednesday night. I'd studied this all day Wednesday. My wife and I were reading together on Wednesday night. I'm reading a book on mountaineering, climbing dangerous mountains, because I love reading about things that I would never do. Um, so I'm reading this book, and it's amazing, and I'm thinking, man, that's just phenomenal what these guys are doing. It's crazy. Sometimes it's really foolish. This is amazing. And then this passage starts ringing in my ears. I'm reading this book with my wife, and I'm thinking, oh, man, it'd be fun. We haven't had a, a, a big trip uh, pretty much ever since we've been married. Um, we kind of just focus our time and energy on kids. And you guys who have kids know what that's like. I thought, man, it'd be fun to go somewhere. We, 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 we could go somewhere that's beautiful. We could go somewhere that's peaceful. We could go on a cruise. Oh, it'd be fun. And I'm thinking, oh, even some of these mountains. I just love going places that make me feel small because I feel way too big most of the time in life. So I'm like, I just want to go feel small. I just want to, I want to I go and just enjoy feeling God towering over me and saying, I've got you in the palm of my hand. And then I thought, that's what I do for all of eternity. So I don't need to worry about when's the next trip going to be that I get to take my wife on. I need to go to this place. I need to do this thing. I, I don't need to worry about that. My entire leisure changes. I stop reading my book and I pull my phone up. And for those of you who read the newsletter this week, i pull this app that's just been amazing. I'm memorizing 2 Timothy 2. I pull the app up, start memorizing, say, Hannah, can you check me? We start talking about the Bible. We start talking about Jesus. And we go to bed feasting on Jesus. We wake up in the morning stuffed because of Jesus satisfying our bellies. Feasting on Jesus changes everything. Everything. If Jesus is in your boat, like last week, he has walked through the storm of God's wrath to be with you. You have everything. If he's with you, you have everything. That's what he's saying here. Too readily we seek satisfaction from the bread of this world. So Jesus says, verse 27, do not work for the food which perishes. Don't do that. Don't live for, strive for that which will ultimately perish. Instead, this is what you should do. Work for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. So you work, but you work for something that's being given to you. How do we acquire this true bread? How do we acquire this bread that doesn't uh, ever die, that leads to eternal life? The only work that guarantees the possession of this bread is to believe in Jesus. The gospel sabotages any notion of legalism or performance-based acceptability with God. The only thing we bring to Jesus is our need. 
all we offer is the admission that we have nothing to offer. That's what a believer does. These crowds are not going to accept Jesus for who he claims to be because they don't see themselves as needy. We just need bread. You provide bread for us. That's all we need. We've got everything else handled. And Jesus is going to say, you have nothing to offer me. Will you come to me with nothing in your hands? They're going to say, no, we've got a lot to offer you. Even what they're going to say, can, what, what do we need to do to work to get you, to get these works of God? We'll do the work. And Jesus is going to say in verse 29, we'll start in verse 28. They're going to say to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Tell us what we need to do. And Jesus is going to say, this is the work of God so explicitly that you believe in him whom he has sent. You don't do anything. You believe. It's not work. It's faith. It's like going to a friend's house. Uh, you call him up on Sunday night, say, hey, can we get together this week? Yeah, let's get together on Wednesday. Okay, cool. And, and you do the whole, you know, what, what can we bring? Oh, you don't have to bring anything. You know, we'll, take, we'll do dessert, you do the meal. No, 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 we'll just take care of it. Okay, great. You go to their house, and they've just laid out this beautiful feast. Just massive, and it's amazing, everything's wonderful, you have a great night. And then as you're leaving, you just pull out your wallet and you say, thanks so much. What do I owe you? How much was that? Um, I mean, it's obviously silly in our mind because we would never do that. Um, if somebody did that to me, every time I hear an example like this, the preacher always goes to, you'd be so offended. I don't think I'd be offended. I wouldn't be like, put your money away. I, I think I'd go, what? Like, I just wouldn't understand. And then I would go into, oh, no, no, it's just our gift to you. We, we just wanted to take care of you. It, it, you don't have to pay us for anything. We just, we love you. Or it'd be like showing up at the feast as the feast is, is set, and you sit down, and somebody gets ready to pray, you say, wait, wait, hang on, let me, let me do something. I'll cook, I brought an egg, and I'll make an omelet for us. And they say, no, 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 we, the feast is ready to be eaten. You don't, have to, you don't have to do anything. That's what Jesus is saying. I have pre- prepared the feast. You have no money to offer to buy food. That's Isaiah 55. Come, come and buy with money you don't even have. I'm giving this to you for free. You don't have to work for anything. Just come and eat. What is the work that you need to do to be a believer? Just eat. Just feast. Just say, I've got nothing. Can I sit at the table? Yep. Uh, I'm starving. I've got no food in my system. I've got nothing of value to offer you. I've got no nourishment unless you provide for me. Can I eat? Yep. And spiritually, I, I'm, a, I'm a sinner. I've got nothing to offer God. Can I be on your team because I'm good? No. Can I be on your team? Because I'm awful, but you're good and you paid for me? Yes. You, you just received the feast that he has given to you, that he has made for you. That's all you do to quote-unquote work. Um, we had Jehovah's Witness come to our house this week. And not just JWs, Mormons have come, and every other religion. You can put any religion here. And we always ask them the same question. Uh, if, if I was in a car accident got thrown from a car, bleeding to death, and I have two minutes to live, how can you assure me right now that I'm going to heaven? And all of them can't. Nobody can give an answer of the gospel because you have to work. You, you have to be baptized. You have to do these works. You have to go on these trips. You have to do, you have to do work. Romans 3.20 says, By the works of the law, no man can be justified in his sight. And the opposite, Romans 3.28, A man is justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. You cannot do anything to get a right standing before God. That's why Jesus is all satisfying to your heart. 
He's all satisfying because he's done everything and you just get to feast on him. That's the seeking crowds and the satisfying Christ. Let's wrap this up. In conclusion, let's just look at those two, the crowds and Christ, the crowds. What lessons can we take away from the crowds? Just very simply, don't work for that which will ultimately fade away. First John 2:15, do not love the world or the things in the world. Uh, there's a number of reasons why. There's three reasons that John gives why we should not love the world. But one of the reasons is the world and all of its lusts are passing away. If you live for this world, there will come a day when what you have gained will be pried from your cold, dead hands. You can't keep it. And everything that you have lived for will fade away in a moment. Every time I leave my house, there's a little frame with one stanza of a poem that I absolutely love. And it says on my right, every, every day I leave, it's like, you know, when, when you play football and there's, you know, go kill them or, you know, destroy them. And you just touch, touch that sign. This isn't a good luck charm, but it's a reminder. And it says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's it. So am I going to feast on him and be satisfied by him today? Am I going to live for that which will last? The crowds didn't. And that's why when Jesus says, look, come to me, I'll give you a feast. They say, no, we don't want it. We will live for that which we can take right now. What about Christ? He is all satisfying. He is enough. Jim Elliott's quote, um, he's no fool who gives up what he can't keep to gain what he can never lose. Only people that do this, by the way, can be good missionaries. Only people that feast on Jesus can be missionaries. Uh, Good, I should just say missionaries. Because you have to die before you die to live well. You have to die to yourself, die to everything in this world, die to everything this life has to offer you, and then you're free to live. But if, if your physical death is your first death, then that death will scare you and there is a second death awaiting. But if you die now, die to yourself, live in Christ, something about everything changes in your life. And your second death is now the gateway entrance to everything you've ever wanted. Said another way from Jim Elliott's quote, Jesus said, you are a fool if you gain the whole world and forfeit your soul. You are a fool if you do that. Brothers and sisters, the whole world is trying to be satisfied. They're trying desperately. And they keep seeking. They keep trying. Uh, You can hear interviews, read articles of people that are saying, man, I thought once I got this, I'd be happy and I'm not. And I don't know what I'm doing. So many just even come to mind right now. I think of um, a a quote that Jim Carrey, an actor who's made millions of dollars, said. I read it on Twitter the other day, and it said, I wish that everyone could have the success that I have had so that they would see that it doesn't satisfy. I wish that everybody could have the success that I've had so they could see that's not worth living for. Tom Brady, New England Patriots quarterback, um, interviewed you have everything 
You have a beautiful wife, amazing house, now a kid, all these accolades as a sports star. You have it all. Are you happy? Are you happy? That's an easy question to answer. Are you happy? He, he, that, you, you lie in that moment, right? As a non-believer, are you happy? Yeah, I'm happy, right? But he has a conscience, and his soul screams out in the middle of this interview when somebody says, are you happy? You think I would be, but I'm not. So we have something that satisfies. We have a feast to offer the world but we can't go to them and say, be satisfied by Jesus when we aren't. That won't be a genuine message, and they won't believe it. This last week, um, or it was a couple weeks ago, when we got back from break, um, a student asked me, because uh, we had we'd found out that we were having a boy, they wanted to know, was really excited for us, and um, so we're having a boy. Oh, what's his name? His name's Tyler uh, Ryan Carmichael. And this sweet student came up to me and said, Tyler Ryan Carmichael. That sounds like a sports name. (laughs) I I didn't know there was such a thing as a sports name. I thought sports names just had like numbers in their names instead of letters. Um, And so I said, oh, that's that's cool. You know, sports name. All right. And they asked me this question. And this moment will stick with me for forever. And they said, is your dream for him to be a sports star. And uh, with everything that was in me, I tried not to just lose it. (laughs) I said, I only have one dream for my kids. I want them to love Jesus more than anything in this world. If they do that, they'll do everything well. If they do that, something about everything will change. I don't care if he's a sports star. I don't care if he's a scientist. I don't care what he does. As long as he loves Jesus, that's the only dream I have for my kids. Let them love Jesus. Because if they love Jesus, they'll be amazing husbands. They'll be amazing wives. They'll be amazing parents. They'll be amazing at whatever they do. Just love Jesus. Love Jesus. That's my dream for myself. That's my dream for you as a church. And so I just plead with you, pursue Jesus. There is no greater pursuit. Pursue him this day. He is better than sports. He is better than food. He is better than money. He is better than family. He is better than friends. He is better than sex. He is better than anything this world has to offer. And the one who says, I will pursue Jesus and find satisfaction in him and in nothing else, that one will never be disappointed, ever. His love is enough to satisfy. He is enough. And if all you have is Christ, then you have everything. Father, I pray that as we feast upon you even now, we have been able to feast on your word. We've been able to feast on the message that you have given to us, that you are all satisfying. And now as we feast on you through song and remember your amazing love for us, God, I pray that we would turn to the things in this world that we so easily pursue and we would declare that they are not worth pursuing. May we chase after Jesus, who is all-satisfying beyond our wildest dreams. I pray it in his name. Oh, the deep.